Hello, and welcome to NeuroCurious, a podcast about all things brain, body, mind, and culture, not necessarily in that order. I'm Deborah Budding, joined by co-hosts Jamie Jones and Peggy Schaefer, and today we're back for episode number two. Woohoo! Good morning. <laughs> Hello. And we're super lucky that we're going to be uh, having Peggy focus on telling us all about neurologic music therapy. Mm-hmm. It's going to be so. Fun. So buckle in because it's going to be super exciting. Um. Uh, first, before we get started with that, though, we wanted to do a couple of shout-outs. Um, one is specifically to Nick Wan, again, for his lovely music. We urge awesome. you to check that out. Um, we also wanted to do a special shout-out to our friends at the Spun On Me podcast, who, um, if you don't know about them, they're just incredible. Um, so, shout-out to fellow Bucago residents. Um <laughs> And, uh, oh, we're also now on iTunes, so if you are having any trouble downloading stuff off SoundCloud, um, we're on iTunes now. Um, I hesitate to urge you to leave reviews, <laughs> but <laughs> we're open to them, question mark. Yeah. But, but you, can, you can get it now. Um, so any, any other uh, like stuff this week anybody wants to talk about, or should we just delve into Peggy... Illuminating. Yeah, you need to finish that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> Illuminating neurologic music therapy for us. Yeah. It's such a cool thing. I think it's pretty cool. I'm, I'm ready if you guys are. Let's do All it. Right. Okay. All right. So, uh, classic party question What is neurologic music therapy? It's kind of complex to answer, but I'm going to try to answer it. So it's defined as the, I'm going to get kind of wordy here. And by the way, everybody should know NMT is like acronym soup. We're yep. full of it. So it's, I'll try to remind me, ladies, if I don't spell something out. Uh, so it's defined as this therapeutic application of music to cognitive, sensory, and motor dysfunction due to neurologic disease of the human nervous system. And it is based on a neuroscience model of music perception and production and the influence of music on non-musical brain and behavior functions. Uh, it is a research-based system of standardized clinical techniques for sensory motor, cognitive. We tend to throw speech language into the cognitive domain and affective domains. And we have an academy. So um, the academy's sort of had a change recently, which I'll get into. But um, it's a professional designation awarded by the Academy of Neurologic Music Therapy, which is mainly our training institute and quality control stuff for NMT. Um Okay, so in the field of music therapy, there are many different areas of focus. So there is more of a psychodynamic approach. There's more improv-based. There's more behavioral. I'm trying to think. I'm sure I'm missing one. I think those are the big ones. At any rate, um, so there's also neurologic, which is what um, I was trained in and find a lot of passion in. So in order to become an NMT, you have to at least finish a bachelor's degree in music therapy. That hopefully will change soon. We're hopefully going to grandfather in a master's level, I hope. That would be that would be <clears> nice. That would be good. Uh, very good, I think. You have to complete a clinical, six-month uh, clinical internship. You have to pass, hopefully, your board certification exam. Um, some states, though, do have licensure. So some states have passed regulation um, to make music therapy a license profession. Not California. I was going to say, I don't think, nope. I don't think our... Lovely state is one of those. Oh, no. 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 There was an attempt that didn't go far, I don't think. Um, 
but I wasn't part of that. So, and then you need to take your initial, <clears throat> excuse me, neurologic music therapy training. And then if you want to become a fellow, within a certain number of years, you have to go in for a peer review. So essentially what we're asked to do is, I believe, forgive me, I might not be right, it used to be three, three video examples of you doing the actual clinical work in mm-hmm. front of your peers. Mm-hmm. And then you go through a peer review process of being questioned and having to defend your approach. And then the academy and the members who are there in the fellowship vote whether you are allowed to be a fellow. Mm-hmm. Um, during that time, also, we get updated on research, on ongoing, I don't know, academy news, etc. And it's just a really great experience because we get to see how everybody's using the techniques across the world because mm-hmm. it's international. Mm-hmm. And then you have to renew that every five years to maintain your fellowship. So that process is ongoing. So it's it's a really great program. I'm really happy I did it. Yeah. And continue to do it. Yeah. Well, yeah. We're happy too. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's I think difficult is that it I know for me it's something that I frequently recommend as an intervention for the the kinds of people I see in my practice and there's not a lot of people that do it. Um, who are properly trained to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's folks who think they're doing rhythm right. stuff by, you know, plugging a kid into like interactive metronome. We can get Which into we'll that get later. Into. Uh-huh. Um, but one of the things I would like to see happen is for there to be a broader awareness of neurologic music therapy as an intervention because it is actually a rigorous scientific-based system of intervention. Um, and have there be more people who are trained to mm-hmm. do it mm-hmm. because essentially when I see people and I see people come from all over the city, um, and I, I know Jamie, this is your experience too. We, we want people to be able to do it. Then we're like, well, there's Peggy, <laughs> right? If you can, if well, you can drive across the city to see her, then, <clears throat> then yeah. great. Well, and I think too, for, for myself, it's a very, <clears throat> excuse me, like specialized for people. So they tend to be more rehab-based, so more right. in stroke, Parkinson's, brain injury, and then more of developmental basis. Um, we tend to work more in the developmental areas, right. um, and there aren't too many people. I know a few people in the area, but I can't really speak to their skills, and that's part of the problem. Right. Um, I was going to say something about that, about neurologic music therapy. Oh, that, that oftentimes the response I get when I'll... Um, let's say, say you should find a neurologic music therapist in your area. Is music therapy? There seems to be this preconceived notion, rightfully so, of which I'm going to get into, of more of a it makes you feel good right. kind of approach to music therapy. And this is not that. This is not a social science model. This is a a paradigm shift from a social science to a neuroscience model. Yeah, which is very different. Which. You know, it's not better or worse. I can't say necessarily for me it's better. It helps me to understand and inform myself of why what I'm doing is working. Right. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's, yeah. A, it's a problem. Speaking of that, mm. speaking of knowing why what mm. you're doing is working. Yes. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of the, the scientific model mm-hmm. behind it? Okay, so the, the, we're going to, re- I'll reference Dr. Michael Tout quite a bit. Um, he was my professor and continues to be on faculty at the academy and really a driving force in the research, primarily, um, of, and the application, obviously, of neurologic music therapy. So he wrote this really great piece, which you guys could look up. It's called A Scientific Model of Music and Therapy in Medicine. 
I forget when it was written. I can look. But at any rate, um, and it outlines this really special thing called the RSMM, which is the Rational Scientific Mediating Model. And I'd like to read a passage from it. It's wordy, and I'll try to do my best to speak slowly because I'm not good at that. <laughs> As I've been told, I'm not so good at that. Um, and basically outlining the basic premise of what the RSMM is. Okay, so hang with me. I'm going to try and make this short, but it's kind of fascinating to me, so I get a little nerdy about it. Okay, adopting the concept of music as a mediating stimulus for non-musical behavior allows us to develop an epistemological theoretical model of music and therapy based on the psychology and physiology of musical responses. So in summary, the outline of this model of music's mediating function in therapy and medicine is based on the premise that music as a mediating stimulus influences non-musical behavior and mediates the desired therapeutic response. Music engages and orders perceptual behavior. Musical stimulus patterns and their referential associations provide focus and structure for attention and motivation to facilitate the mediating process of behavioral learning and change. Based on this premise, the RSMM unfolds in four steps, each of which is logically based on the previous step through a scientific reasoning process. Before discussing the structure of the RSMM in detail, I, so this is Dr. Tout, by the way, yeah. writing this, so I should discuss the nature of the model. First, its overall structure, in its overall structure, the RSMM functions as an epistemological model, that is, a model to show ways of generating knowledge concerning the linkage between music and therapy. In the epistemological application, the RSMM helps us to know how to know or to learn how to learn. It does not speak to the specific content of the mechanisms in music that produce therapeutic effects. Rather, it shows how to find them in a logical, systematic structure by linking the proper bodies of knowledge and showing what information needs to be extracted from these bodies to build a coherent theory. So what he's saying here is that we have to know why we're doing what we're doing works, and how we can inform that is through looking at different models of research. And when last week we were talking about application, Right, this piece of application. What rang in my head when we were talking about it is how beautifully the RSMM does that, like, perfectly. Because these different levels of research that we look at are informed by the level before. Yeah. So it's all based on how do we get these techniques that are created, standardized techniques, to be applied to a clinical population. Well, right. we can't get there until we know why or how to get there. Right. And so it's critical to understanding this foundation because it basically has created our techniques for us. Right. And there's something very systematic about it, which I like, which also, very. one of the things that's sort of a, a burr in my bonnet mm. is um, <laughs> with so many applications, like we see, we, we work with people who have neurodevelopmental challenges and disabilities, mm -hmm. and there are constantly just, just these wooey uh -huh. intervention models that are thrown at them uh -huh. with no research to support. Mm -hmm. And people are expected and do spend thousands of dollars Ugh. to supposedly assist with somebody's function right. when there's really no there's really no supporting evidence that right. it's something they should be spending their time and money doing. That's right. And part of the argument that people make is that, oh well, this is just so deeply complicated. Nobody can come up with a with a profound and complicated enough way of measuring how this works. Right. right. Except NMT actually 
has a framework that allows you to operationalize things and start, right. start to specifically look at ways of intervening with different kinds of client populations and different kinds of functional challenges and to do some measurement. Yeah, we can actually measure it. Yeah, which, <laughs> wow. Oh, How? my word. <laughs> Shocking off. That's just so weird. Right. Why would somebody want that? Well, and, and for especially for our populations that we work with, when you get a diagnosis, especially of ASD, of autism, the kitchen sink is thrown at you. Right. And it's very overwhelming. And so, yeah, I find that, that and this kind of hits on that one-size-fits-all model type of thinking of, you know, just because you can plug in a nice, neat program that looks very clean and, and packaged and marketed doesn't mean it's doing its job. Right. And it doesn't mean it's appropriate for that Correct. particular set of issues that That's that individual right. is that presenting with. That's right. That's right. Okay, so I'm going to break down the four models of the RSMM. So hopefully that wasn't too wordy, but that'll probably be the last wordy part I do. Well, maybe not. Well, <laughs> we'll see. That kind of wordy. Okay, anyway. that kind of word. Yeah, that kind of brilliant wordiness. Um, all right, so the first model is musical response models. So we're going to look at basic psychological and physiological mechanisms of music perception and performance in the areas of affective behavior, cognition, and sensory motor. So essentially, how is the brain responding to a musical event? Mm -hmm. Right? We're going to look at that through imaging, through different research. Um, the non-musical parallel models is the next um, step, number two. And it's establishing meaningful links between musical behavior and non-musical behavior processes by a way of comparing the analysis, looking at the parallel or similarities between the non-musical and the musical. So a good example of this would be a musical uh, model would be singing. Right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to look at the brain and how it's being used and um, with a singing exercise. Now, what would be the non-musical parallel? Talking. Correct. So now we're going to look at speech, talking. On prosody side of things more? Mm, uh, this is, well, I mean, I guess it could be, but uh -huh. specifically what the example I'm giving is just what areas are being used. Are, they cro are there similarities in the brain that are using similar networks? Right, so people are using a lot of functional imaging. Oh, very much. That. That's this, yes. Uh, mediating model is the third one. And this one's pretty cool. I like this one. So it's developing mediating models that are designed to study behavior systematically. So they're based on the parallels and similarities identified in step two, right? So if yeah. there's no similarities and there's no care, then we're done. Right. There's no need to go any farther. Um, the findings in step three are essential for clinical research because they lay the groundwork of data for scientifically founded connections and mechanisms that link the music to behavior learning and change. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth um, model level we call them levels, uh, is clinical research. So when we see that there's mediating effects of music on normal behavior and behavior dysfunction, um, systematic treatment research can be pursued. So this focuses um, on more clinical applications, right. so specific diagnoses. Right. And so that's where this really started yeah. with um, kind of post-stroke yes. rehab, right? And, and Parkinson's. And Parkinson's. Yep. With gait. Gate training and fall That's prevention right. stuff. Absolutely. Well, and it was already intuitively understood, you know. I mean, even speech pathologists were no, they have MIT, melodic intonation therapy. Right. Which has existed since I don't even know when, but for years. It's a very complicated, long, you know, it's, it's a very long process to go through. But we use MIT as well um, for stroke patients who have a specific kind of aphasia who cannot talk but can sing. Yes. 
So we're seeing these carryovers in other things, which we're going to kind of go into more of the motor, sensory motor piece of it. Um, so we want to, okay, so where was I? Okay, so step four about the clinical model. So this is why in NMT we have standardized clinical techniques. So, for instance, if a patient's referred to me and they have Parkinson's, I have a number of techniques that have already been proven through research because of the RSMM that then prove I have access to use these techniques with this specific diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I can't think of another discipline that has that. Mm -hmm. So, Peggy, what sort of diagnoses have been researched within NMT? A lot. So, we've got Parkinson's, stroke, um, a little bit of Huntington's. Not well, not too much, but um, and then autism, cerebral palsy, um, Downs. Am I missing any traumatic brain injury? Of course. I think, I'm sure I'm missing some. Has there been research in people with um, learning disabilities, like reading disorders? Yes, And sort of especially with fluency and retrieval kinds of problems? Definitely, yes. Hmm. More of an undiagnosed, specific diagnosis, yeah. Um, So what about trauma? That is the new frontier, I believe. Um, I I don't want to speak for Dr. Tout and the group and other researchers out there. I know that they've been looking at the affective domain, um, specifically mood vectoring and memory recall. So when you're in a specific mood set, you then can recall memories, mm-hmm. right? So that mood associative um, network. Um, but not specifically that I know of. Although certainly his work has been borrowed <laughs> by people treating trauma. This is, is true. my understanding. Yep, and, there, there um, are people out there. And I, I suppose we should say that there's actually a, a trauma model um, that is going by NMT. Mm-hmm. Um, that has nothing to do with Dr. Tout Correct. directly. Correct. Um, Which we'll and I'm not sure. Him. I'm not sure if Dr. Tout even knows about it. And I'm knowing him. I I'm not sure he will be pleased. Um, no. Uh, and and we can get into this uh, towards the end as well when we discuss some um, sort of terms that get thrown around and how to how to use those terms and understand them a little bit more or not understand them or not use them. Right. <laughs> um, right. Uh, but the, that's a real big problem is that the research of this information and the research that has come out of this has been um, used with knowledge of knowing that it's there, but incorrectly, and then also without knowledge um, on the, on the sake, for the sake of Dr. Tao's research. Um, I know the sports industry is very interested. Actually, there's some research out for... Um, uh, which we'll get into the, the rhythm of it, but uh, what rowing? is that? Rowing, thank you. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, using metronomes for that. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a ton of sense. And it's, um, I don't know, I, I in some ways I'm really appreciative of NMT taking on the clinical approach of it for these individuals who really need the work. Yes. And now we're going into the sports medicine, whereas sometimes it's the other way, right? It's right. Where, where does our bread get buttered and then we're going to, apply it to clinical populations. So I really respect the ethics of it as well. Yeah. Oh, one of the things I was wondering about Mm -hmm. in terms of um, sort of research stuff is, I mean, have have there been kind of culturally diverse Mm -hmm. applications Mm -hmm. of of this? Mm -hmm. That's a good point. I wanted to speak to that. Uh, Music is not a universal language. Right. And that's a, a, a misconception because... Um, Berlin and Meyer talk about this, which we can link to in our notes. 
And what I find so fascinating is this concept of emotion or, or expectation in music. So, mm-hmm. like, uh, for instance, if I'm working with a client who has, let's say, Western background in, in understanding music, I'm going to use more of a traditional cadence, which is why it's so important for us as music therapists to have a, a good, solid musical background. Right. Um, because I'm not going to go in and play a cadence that is unfamiliar to them, therefore throwing off the expectation of the resolution of the song. Right. right. So if I'm going to do a mnemonic device, meaning a memory mnemonic device with someone, I'm going to pick a musical cadence or sequence that will feel familiar to their brain. Right. Right? Because now the music information is being paired and associated with something that they can predict. Right. And emotion is very much about prediction and resolution. Right. So I'm not, I can't speak to that specifically, but I, I can speak to the fact that music is not a universal language. Yeah. And I think that's important to, to think about because, again, if you're looking at rhythm and you're mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, are you are your beats on the one and the that's three? Right. Or beats on the two Rock and the four? And, exactly. And Precisely. how... So and it's so it's it's really interesting to me how this way of looking at things can be, on one hand, can be deeply individualized mm-hmm. and and deeply applied across cultures uh-huh. if if people have a mind to do it. Right. But it can also be handled in a very one size fits all That's way, right. in which many of the um, sort of large scale um, attempts to use rhythm. Uh, out in the world for for making money purposes tend to have this very rigid one size fits all mm-hmm. um, <laughs> interactive metronome. Um, well, that's why, it that's why it doesn't work. Yeah. Well, or or you'll hear stories that it works, and and my response to that is, well, it may have coincidentally hit the cadence that you were looking for, or that that matched that person. The next step is the transformational design model. So we've we've talked about the RSMM, and the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because. What's so great about NMT is the fact that now we're taking all this great research and applying it in, in the office, let's say, for lack of a better term. And this is not found throughout other music therapy, um, I don't know. Models? <laughs> Models, thank you. <laughs> for lack of um, a better Right, word. because we, we're going to do a diagnostic and functional assessment. Now that carries over to other music therapies. Um, and we're going to develop therapeutic goals and objectives. And we're going to design functional, non-musical therapeutic exercises. But this step four of translating it into a functional therapeutic music exercise is very important because we want to take our goals are non-musical. I'm not interested if somebody can play the piano. Maybe that's a, a off the I, I don't know how to put that like kind of off-topic goal. Um, but I'm not interested. Maybe I'm working on finger flexion and extension. Right. I'm not working on that. Or maybe I'm working on focus and attention, dual divided attention, being able to play two notes at the same time. Right. Right. So inhibition skills. Correct. And- That's right. Um, and then we want it to transfer. So if I'm working with someone and we're working on memory for a sequence of brushing teeth, it's not music therapy. Here's a good example. It's not music therapy for me to say, I'm going to sing the words of the song, and therefore, if I put the word toothbrush in the song, it's music therapy. Right. <laughs> right? If I'm, I'm not kidding, guys. This happens. Okay? And I'm going to brush my teeth, brush my teeth, brush, right? Okay? Okay. And, right. Then, and then they go, hey, there's our musical exercise. That's music therapy. The reason why NMT is so beautiful for me, and I love it, is because there's the translation. Right. So I'm going to create a melody that is to a cadence or a, a pace 
that will be memorable for that person. I'll put the words that I want them to remember at the end of the phrasing so that I can remove those words and have them fill them in. You see? Like, yes. you are my, right? Sunshine, Sunshine right? Okay. So we're using, <laughs> yeah. Now, if you got that wrong, um, we'd have to do some music therapy, okay? <laughs> well, we know I'm uh, dementing. Or, yeah, well. well <laughs> ing? <laughs> or ed? <laughs> okay. But, um, so... In the musical creation of this song, I'm going to place expected cadences in music and melody at the time where the word that I want to remove, mm-hmm. for them to have to retrieve the word themselves and apply it. And then maybe what we'll do is also record the songs on phones. So then it transfers to real life. So then I'm going to take the client to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And we're going to sing the song in the bathroom to get them through the steps. And then we're not going to sing it. We're just going to hum it. Because the mnemonic device has paired the rhythm also, inherent in the melody, has paired the information. Right. It's the carrier of the information. And so now we can help people to sequence through sequences. Well, and this is, again, one reason why I like this intervention so much. um, Because it's the the kinds of, of challenges that we see for people who have trouble with their adaptive function with day to day kinds of things um it those are super important skills like uh, so many of the people who come to my office the challenges are i can't i can't get my kid to brush their teeth in the morning we can't get out the door without me right Mm -hmm. the transitions are are difficult Mm -hmm. and this kind of intervention is really super useful in the just managing those day-to-day tasks that a lot of times people who do interventions and, and are very sort of top-down and cognitively mm-hmm. oriented, they don't pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. And they're very content-focused, mm-hmm. and they're very much focused on kind of skill acquisition in this global right. sense right. without understanding how how that's going to be carried through mm-hmm. and, and whether it will be effective and then whether it will generalize. Correct. And that's why I love the TDM because it is about generalizing. It's built into it. Yeah. Our goal is not that they just take place in the therapy, that it generalizes. Yeah. And that's, that's true in music therapy as, as a whole. We want that. But I like the specific translation of the non-musical to musical experience. Yeah. It makes you put the, the horse before the cart, not the cart before the horse. Because mm-hmm. if you're just going to write a song and not know what your non-musical goals are, then mm-hmm. you're not really goal-oriented. Yeah. You know, it's not going to really facilitate the change you're looking for. Yeah. Well, and this is also making me think about, you know, Dr. I really like Dr. Tout's book, um, Rhythm Music and the Brain. Yes. And we'll put a, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's great. It's just a great book. It Um, is. It can be, it's a little hard to find these days. Yeah. You can, oh, really? On Amazon? Well, I think you can still get it on Amazon, but. um, It's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Okay. Uh, So moving on. So now we're going to get into rhythm. And this quote I love is, the brain that engages in music is changed by engaging in music. Mm -hmm. So it's listening, performing, composing, improvising. All of these things change. But we know that it changes the brain, which is so awesome in the new um, technology to be able to see these things. Right. I mean... And generally, I mean, everything changes the brain, sure. right? I'm, yeah. drink, I'm drinking yeah. my cup of coffee and I'm changing my brain. Uh, but and but the brain is becoming dependent on that right. coffee that you're drinking. So, but the, what again, what I, what, I, what I like is when people can be uh, 
specific and mm-hmm. how things change, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And also um, an emphasis on systems as opposed to, you know, for me, the, the sign of, of, a, um, of a quacky intervention is when people start talking about specific parts of the brain and aiming for intervening right right, right, right. that specific part yeah, of the brain right. i just th- i see that language and i'm like okay uh, i know how i'm telling people exhausting. to save their money um or that right. yeah or or to to give an example you know there's a lot of listening therapies or things like that we're going to go in and help them become auditorily uh, right say, we're going to help with their auditory, auditory processing, processing right? yeah and the auditory cortex is responsible for more uh way more and the, yeah. the interconnectivity of it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so we'll, we'll talk more about that in a bit. But let's talk more about, let's talk rhythm. about rhythm. Rhythm is so cool. It's so cool. It's so amazing. It's, it's really amazing. Uh, so in the research, musical and non-musical networks often overlap. So we're seeing right. that there is no musical center of the brain. Shocking. I know. Everybody hang on. There, you're not left-sided <laughs> or right-sided. Can we all just... Uh, no, I thought the music center was the pineal gland. <laughs> I'm sorry, I must have gotten that. Yeah, you're going to need to read this whole, book. It's the whole oh. right, right cortex music. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. Left right. It's the right, it's the yeah. right brain. Yeah, that's if you're good right. at math, then you're here, right? Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Not right. I keep true. Forgetting. So the specific research started looking at the cortex, so primary auditory cortex, but seeing how it extended to motor processing in the cortex and obviously as technology's improved now we can get deeper in the brain and get to our friend if if anybody actually cares to go beyond the cortex (laughs) our friends basal ganglia and cerebellum indeed right ding 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 (laughs) um which is where this research really flourished and took off Mm -hmm. because we were seeing people being able to walk better with a metronome on and i don't mean just turning a metronome on there's a specific technique you have to use and be trained in to do this Um, but looking at the cerebellum and um, basal ganglia specifically and seeing that music was activating these areas as well and using them and in fact I believe what I was reading is that even with cerebellar damage it didn't affect the the cerebellar um, use network of rhythm right which is awesome Mm -hmm. right and consistent engagement of distinct neural networks in the cerebellum suggests a central role of the cerebellum in the temporal organization of cognitive and perceptual processes in music. And our dear well, friend. With our, so this is also probably a good place to mm-hmm. just um, note Jeremy Schmaman's mm-hmm. work. Um, and we'll put, um, I think in the show notes, we'll put in some links to his research Definitely. just because he's so... Um, and there are actually some videos of him giving talks that mm-hmm. people might be interested in, in seeing because he's mm-hmm. he's he's pretty boss, pretty boss. Yeah. And um, okay, and then my last little note here is neural impulses of auditory rhythm project directly into the motor system. Mm-hmm. So there you have it. It's pretty great. So what's entrainment, Peggy? <laughs> Oh man, I knew you were going to ask me this, and I have such a hard time answering it. I'm going to refer back to you, defer back to you. So, motor responses become entrained with the timing. So, basically, there's like a magnet effect that happens. That's the best way That's I can describe it. That's what happens in rave, right? <laughs> I think other things happen there too. Not that I know. Okay, I rollerblade and go polka dancing. So, <laughs> I don't know about raves, um, but. Uh, 
basically a magnetic effect. So it happens at a subconscious level. It's not a thought out process. When mm-hmm. rhythm enters our system, it goes directly down mm-hmm. to our spinal cord, through a reticular spinal. Um, uh, sorry. Ridiculous. You want to say fluid. You want to say fluid, don't you? <laughs> no, don't. Don't say it. Uh, so it synchronizes and changes the movement pattern. So that's essentially what entrainment is. Does that explain it okay? Yeah. Okay. It's a disco. Yeah, it's a disco. Well, and a good example in everyday life, I always like to give my clients like an everyday life sort of thing. You're listening to a song, your foot starts tapping. Right. You're not thinking about it. It's just happening. Right. And now we have research and actual... Uh, I don't know data to right. prove this. Well, and this is interesting, and I um, I need to um, look more into Seth Horowitz's mm. work, mm-hmm. who's, who does some really interesting um, work with with auditory stuff, and he's been looking into ways to help with virtual reality. Mm. Um, have you not get sick? Like I can't do like the Oculus Ugh. Rift and stuff. I can't engage Ugh. with that kind of. Um, technology i get it it makes it gives me motion sickness and so he's doing some work with them to help with relieving with that relieving for, that for yeah users. oh interesting um i'll try to i'll try to yeah. dig it up and put a link in the show notes to it because it's really super interesting huh i like that yes please do um so rhythm and timing are critical to appropriate movement we talk about this mm-hmm. all the time what is appropriate movement it is timed with the event or it's timed it's not too fast it's not knocking undershoot and overshoot and it's applied kind of thing. to context right That's so right. it's appropriate right. to the context where right. it's being demanded or right. expected and which we hit on the last time which uh about the, this concept of sensory motor not just applying to how we move but how our thoughts move right how our emotions move right Mm -hmm. that's one of the things we've talked about before is that if we're not doing something Mm -hmm. then we're actively thinking about Mm -hmm. what we're gonna do or we're regretting something Mm -hmm. we did but it's always about the dewey Mm -hmm. (laughs) i never regret anything okay uh so what i find interesting i keep looking for this data and i found it so um when when they did this, re- how they know this is they did a research um, uh, process where they had individuals listening to a metronome, right? Mm-hmm. And then they changed, so at 500 milliseconds, so mm-hmm. it clicked every 500 milliseconds. They changed the percentage from five, either 20% of 500 milliseconds or 2% of 500 milliseconds. So they took a conscious change in the pace and they took a subconscious, one that you cannot perceive a change. A 2% change you're not going to perceive on a conscious level. Mm-hmm. And it changed the output. It mm-hmm. changed the the recognition of the rhythm. Mm-hmm. So this shows that we're finding these very minute changes on such a subconscious level, which is why for our populations that we work with, it is so important to understand the music or the sounds. Right. That are around. This is making me think of Liz Torres, uh-huh. too. Absolutely. And, and if we could we'll beg get her. her and yeah, drag we'll her. her to come on here, we can talk about... We'll stalk her. Talk, yeah. <laughs> Wait, that sounds... More, more that sounds okay, but, that, but never her, mind. her work you know, is on micro-movement differences. Absolutely. In, right. in autism spectrum and schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. is very much hand-in-glove with that, which is why, again, her work is so simpatico with, with this. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, the last thing I wanted to say about entrainment is you don't have to learn it. It's not a learned process. It's mm-hmm. in you. Mm-hmm. It's already there. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so does that kind of explain entrainment enough for you? I think that's a good start. And I'm sure people, you know, listeners mm-hmm. might be interested in, mm-hmm. in hearing more can contact us and we can Absolutely. give them more info. Send an email. 
Okay, so priming of the auditory motor pathway. So this hit on the reticulospinal, which we kind of touched on, pathways are, are utilized to send the information down, right, mm-hmm. to the, throughout the spinal cord. So it was discovered as early as 1967 and later 1976, um, the first are Paltsev and Elner and Rosignol and Melville Jones. So we like to give props to that. Those are the props fathers of always. this. always. People always should get props. That's right. And then later supported by Miller. So the reason why the, the Miller one is so fascinating is what they did is we did um, RA, it was called rhythmic auditory stimulation, which is the classic sort of gate training that started all of this mm-hmm. neuromusic therapy with Parkinson's uh, patients. And they could see that the EMG, so the actual muscle fiber activation in the legs after doing RAS was changed. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the freak, the let's say, how does he term it? The circuitry or or uh, orchestration of these fibers were paired with the change not only in the rhythm but also changed the movement plan, the trajectory of the movement. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Which I'm going to move on to now. So the cueing of the movement period. This we can get into like a philo- philosophical thing about this because I find this to be so beautiful. But it our brain does not analyze the clicks themselves; it analyzes right. the time between them. Right. It's the silence. It's the, right. the time between. That's in Japanese. Right? That's it. Right. Mm-hmm. And it therefore can predict what the next beat is going to be. Yeah. And so that is why it changes um, uh, the acceleration. So kinematic patterns parameters, sorry. So acceleration, velocity, position across time. It acts as a stabilizer to the movement. Mm-hmm. It helps to organize the timing of the output of the movement and the movement itself and the conclusion, which kind of goes back to our intention program conversation, right? Right. The start of the movement, the continuation of the movement, and the ending of the movement. Well, and there's, and again, I've had such a busy past couple of weeks, I haven't been re- closely reading it, but there's some news and some studies that have come out recently specifically looking at oscillatory oscillatory Mm -hmm. differences Mm -hmm. across brain networks Mm -hmm. and rhythms of engagement among and between those Mm -hmm. that I think Mm -hmm. um, are really important Mm -hmm. and need to be understood better and and looked at more but not today not today (laughs) <laughs> Not today. Yeah. And then the last um, piece of this is uh, basically the, the rhythm needs to match the individual. Yep. So Which is super important. Well, it is a very critical piece that gets misused. Um, and and with, with disabled people in oh, general and boy. sort of the coercive aspects uh-huh. of interventions right. where rhythms and um, expectations mm-hmm. end up being imposed upon mm-hmm. somebody in a way that does not feel natural to them, right. and then they're expected to just hop to it and adapt. A classic example of this is uh, I have a number of clients who are very musically driven. They love music. They love performing it. They love engaging in it. But they don't love it when they have to take lessons. Right. And my argument back to the families is because the teacher, not in a malicious way, right. but the teacher is expecting the music to sound a certain way. So it will be paced a certain way. It will right. be applied or um, let's say, what the, what's the word I'm looking for? It'll be imposed on the individual. Yes. Rather than the individual being the one who guides the music experience. Right. And um, not that we shouldn't also be doing that in conjunction with them, but it goes back to this. If I'm going to take a rhythm and apply it to your system, run this fast, Deborah. Go. That's oh, not no. going to go. <laughs> it's not going to go well. No. No. Mm-mm. 
And it's dysregulating for the individual. Right. Yeah. Well, and again, this is why I have issues with people using, I mean, even though, you know, the, the challenge is that, that not everybody can come see somebody like you. And so what ends up happening is that people from different um, different kinds of trainings will just go buy an interactive metronome package Correct. for their computer Correct. and then just throw it on in. That's right. And it, I'm not saying that it can't be used in a way that doesn't harm people because obviously it, there are elements that can be helpful. Uh-huh. But to me, it's that... Um, that misattuned mm-hmm. application of mm-hmm. a rhythm to somebody that mm-hmm. doesn't that doesn't attend to their natural rhythm and then try to make accommodations in space between those things, um, right? That it can be actively damaging. Well, and then you correct, and then you think about how hard it is for people that we work with to move. Yeah. And then so what you're saying is is uh, move your body to this pace, but I'm not going to be empathetic to the fact that you walking into this room was a challenge. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, it, and it, it, I mean, on another level, it sets a, an arrhythmicity within the relationship as well. Right. Yeah. And with that, the, the rhythm of interpersonal interaction. That's so one of the things right. that we were, we all, you know, we all happen to love and work with a lot of people on the autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that when I'm seeing people, uh, folks in the community, sometimes parents, sometimes teachers, will say, well, how do we teach this person mm-hmm. to um, interact appropriately with people, quote-unquote, yeah, right. and you know, get the inter- interpersonal rhythm? And uh-huh. my question is, well, how are you accommodating to their rhythm? That's right? right. How are you accommodating to this other person's mm-hmm. rhythm and then together working to bridge uh-huh. the rhythm between the two of you? Why is it always, why are we always demanding that people with disabilities norm it up? Right, You know, instead Absolutely. of finding, finding a place in between That's for right. everybody to meet. Right. I mean, you've got to, and, and again, the pendulum can swing the other way, right? Where it's mm-hmm. the parents that are so attuned that they, you know, there's no demands put on the, the individual whatsoever, that they right. are completely matched with the with the individual. Therefore, their own coping skills and their own interpersonal rhythm is not being worked on. Right. right? So it's a balance. You're right. right. It's an absolute balance. Um, but I, I, I guess that's a little tangential, but you get what we're saying. <laughs> well... That's us. Welcome. <laughs> you're, if, if you weren't you're aware lucky, that we're tangential, yeah, then you're you'll... lucky that we stayed on topic for as long as we did. I think we, we did have. a really good job. I really, I'm very proud of us, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last bit here um, is about cognition. So the same mm-hmm. rules apply for cognition. It's been harder to look at, but uh, you see this in mnemonics. So being able to remember a song is easier than being able to remember spoken word. Right. Um, same thing with attention and focus. So I can play two different rhythms at the same time. Can you select out which rhythm you need to, to mm-hmm. replicate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then same thing for speech and res- uh, like uh, air support, etc. So we can take the right. same motor principles and right. apply it to the motor principles for speech and language. Right. Mm-hmm. And rhythm, you know, we didn't really talk about this, but this is, and this is sort of in the realm of mm-hmm. the Jeremy Schmalm and stuff with mm-hmm. the undershooting and overshooting piece right. is that, that there those rhythmic aspects and being able to have the rhythm of uh, an interaction mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or a bit of verbal output right. to start being more matched in, in rate, rhythm, and force. Yep. And not overshooting or undershooting right. the target. Right. Or under, yeah, correct. And undershooting or overshooting thought, right? So right. Um, we're having a conversation. I may say a word that then triggers you to think about five different things. As now usual. the individual. Well, 
I know. I'm using this example going, yeah, that's actually applicable here. Let's not hit it right on the head, Peg. Um, <laughs> goes for me, too. <laughs> so, but, but we see this a lot where the thinking is at a certain pacing, right? So now I've said a word that's triggered a thought for this person, mm-hmm. and they're five steps ahead. Mm-hmm. But now the person who's still here is going, what happened? You're not right. you're not getting it. You're you know, right. and then that that throws the whole thing off. So right, and and the emotional piece mm-hmm. too. I mean, this I think gets to and Jamie, you were bringing up the trauma piece, mm-hmm. right? That the, the undershooting and overshooting, in terms of people who have had traumatic experiences mm-hmm. and right. who um, are managing overshooting and undershooting, in terms of their emotional reactivity. Well, sure, the effect of, that's why I was asking about it, and I've, you know, been hoping for a while that Dr. Tout did more research in the area of sort of effective overshooting and undershooting, mm-hmm. and misapplying effective responses to mm-hmm. the context, mm-hmm. um, which we often see in trauma people. Right. And I know he started to look at that. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll keep encouraging him to do more and, and try not to be too frustrated with the people that are applying what doesn't exist yet in the literature. Well, this, we were talking about this earlier. I'm trying to think whether... You said that so nicely. I, that I, nice I keep wondering... I'm being, being nice today. Is it, is, it, you know, is it more disturbing to Michael Tout for the, the people who like steal his work without uh, crediting him? Or the people who take his work and say they're applying his work in ways that is completely... Antithetical. I think we get angrier he than he does um, <laughs> because we see the effect that it really has on the fan. I mean, right. we really see what it does, and we also see how it is pushed. Right. Um, well, all these physics. There are a lot of these physiological interventions that get marketed to large groups of people. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to name their names because I don't want to be sued. But um, that that really there there is some actual research on some level right. behind some little piece of what they're doing, but the way they're packaging it together and then selling it as a as an intervention package right. really has no, has no research behind it. And and this oh, we were gonna talk about yeah, yeah. Um, neurobullocks. Yeah, exactly. So um That's what I was gonna say. if if y'all don't know about neurobullocks, the website, I highly, highly, highly recommend looking into it. Um, it's one, it's hilarious, but two, um, it's created by an actual real brain researcher mm-hmm. um, with an interest in sort of serving the public mm-hmm. uh, and knowing kind of what's real and what isn't. And so we'll put it in the show notes too. Yeah, um, he wrote but a, it's a, a great piece about. He wrote a very good piece about neurologic mm-hmm. music therapy versus mm-hmm. interactive metronome on, on the site right. um, that's really very good. Mm-hmm. Um, I may have had something to do <laughs> with that. Be done. <laughs> It's okay. That's all right. Disclosure's good. Disclosure's good. But but it was it was supported by Dr. Tout. Right. I mean it you know the and right. and by a passion of seeing what I mean I've I, I've had numbers of families say, you know, while it may have helped not that particular technique necessarily. There's tons of different quote-unquote listening auditory therapies out there. And movement therapies. Oh, correct. Too. Um right. you know with every comment that you get, eh, right? Or you get my kid no longer toilet trained. Um, my kid stopped right. talking. Right. Um, and I don't say that to to scare people. I'm just saying that with every story you hear, there can be another version of it. Right. Right. And this is where individual differences matter That's a bunch. Right. Um, that is right. So um, should we talk a little bit about how people can learn more about? Yeah. Neurologic music yeah, therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Too. So the well, first I want to talk about this new research that oh, yeah, came yeah, out. Yeah. Okay, this is yeah, super yeah. cool. Super cool. All right. So 
they had two groups. They had one group who listened, who were asked to do a motor task, right, of tapping. They usually go with tapping. Right. I might be wrong. Sorry, Dr. Tal. But tapping um, to a beat, right? Mm -hmm. And then they had a group that listened to the rhythm that they were going to tap before they tapped. Mm -hmm. And then they had a group that just tapped, Mm -hmm. right? I believe there was a stimuli on during that, but I, okay, I'll I'll link to this because I have a a link to the um, abstract. Anyways, if you listen to it before, it acts as a priming mechanism and your performance increases. Right. Well, and this is something that's interesting to me because the the whole area of priming research Mm -hmm. has been just such a, uh, just hellscape of (laughs) (laughs) shitty research that doesn't, that can't be reproduced. That's right. Right? Um, So I think... You mean subliminal messages aren't a thing? (laughs) I use them on myself all the time. Don't say that, Peggy. Right. Don't say it. So, so again, like when research like this that's what kind of thoughtfully done um, gives me hope for, right. for right. how, because in the, 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 the whole social science arena mm-hmm. is so problematic in terms of how their the, the research is being done. Um, so we'll put a link to that right. article. But for clinical population application, brilliant. Yeah. Now I tell my families, hey, why don't you turn the metronome on in the car ride to the office? Right. Here's the typical cadence that we're at. Now, maybe that's not accurate, and sorry if I'm wrong, but I'm trying it. Right. Well, this is where I think we should, at some point, we should probably have an episode that's specifically on um, anticipation um, mm-hmm. and inverse and forward mm-hmm. models. Yes. Kind of what yep. they are and why it like matters Feed forward, right? Mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to know what they are mm-hmm. and understand how they operate, um, especially because still so much of the work that's out there in terms of cognitive function, it remains very corticocentric mm-hmm. and um, purports to try to explain multiple aspects of function without including <laughs> deep brain structures and right. also large-scale networks and interacting networks. And to me... This area of research is really um, promising in terms of continuing to bring that integrated mm-hmm. view of brain function mm-hmm. into more direct application. Right. And, and ultimately, um, because we're all in the business of working with people and trying to help them with their adaptive function, it just makes it more likely to be able to do that and have there be some effective change Mm -hmm. um, that we all know having been trained in some areas of mental health um, there's the whole idea of you know the light bulb has to want to change right right how do you change behavior well you change it by changing it right instead of just talking about (laughs) that's it let's talk you more doing (laughs) right let's talk you more doing so many people like when I say that Uh but it's I do but it's really true (laughs) um it is so, uh, what else we got here, Peggy? Okay, and then the last little bit that um, I wanted to touch on is that we, uh, is, in terms of the academy, have great news because the University of Toronto has now hired Dr. Michael Tout yeah. and Dr. Corrine Tout, mm-hmm. his um, very intelligent and lovely wife, uh, to become the director, well, he's going to become the director of the Music and Health Research Center. The MARC, see an acronym. Yep, we gotta just keep keep <laughs> them coming. Keep those acronyms keep going, them coming. And he's gonna oversee um, the master's and PhD program in music and health sciences. Yeah. Oh, this makes me just yeah. just makes me so sad that Maureen Dennis died too, because mm. you know, she was at the hospital for sick kids in Toronto. That's uh. her. 
Um, she and was, she was yeah. a really fantastic yeah. pediatric neuropsychologist and a, one of the early people really focusing on cerebellar function. And huh. she was just a, a hoot. Um, so I'm very sad that she's not here to be able to to work collaboratively mm-hmm. with, with them because I think they would be yeah. great. But I hopefully he'll hook up with um, Edge Lab people yeah. over at Ryerson because they yeah. could probably come up with some pretty cool stuff together. Yeah. Yeah, it's exciting. I think it's great. And um, so the the academy itself will have ongoing trainings around the nation and around the world. They also do trainings in Europe, etc. Um, but it will, that sort of is, is a constantly moving entity. It's It travels wherever the trainings are, the academy, right. if you can think of it that way. But the actual uh, program mm-hmm. for this particular issue will be out of University of Toronto with Dr. Tal. So who can attend trainings that that's the academy? That's what I was going to answer. Thank you. Oh my gosh, Jamie. Red so it's like you guys. We're in like, rhythm. We're in sync. There you go. <laughs> God, I'm so corny. So corny. Okay. Um, the You may take, so my understanding, it used to be when I started that physical therapists, occupational therapists, because see, physical therapists can, I mean, this is a great tool for them. Um, some places are more open to it than others, let's say. Maybe yep. a little competition feeling, which is... <sighs> Sigh. Okay. Right? Um, but at any rate, you can take... I believe there's a short course, which I can I can validate um, with Dr. Chow. But I, there's a short course that you may take if you are not a professional, but to use... Not a music therapist. But to use the actual NMT designation, you must be a music therapist. But it doesn't mean that you can't take the training. Mm-hmm. Good to know. All right. And I'm trying to think if there was something else I wanted to say about that particular issue. I don't think so. It'll come when we're done recording. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then we'll just pop it in the end of the show notes. By the way. <laughs> this, this is, <laughs> is going to sound so <laughs> fluid. Uh, yeah, but I think that's pretty much it. Well, I think the 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 term that I kept forgetting to mention mm. for one of the things that I find so helpful about neurologic music therapy is fluency. Correct. That's a good one. Um, that anybody who has problems with fluency in their behavior, mm-hmm. I think, can, can benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's sort of across the board. And one of the things I like about neurologic music therapy is that the... Just like how educational therapy is sort of like the difference between giving a man to fish and teaching them to fish. That's it's right. process-oriented as opposed to content. You can plug in whatever content you want. Mm-hmm. Um, it it can work for so many different kinds of things. Right. Um, as long as you're focusing on things like fluency, um, right. kind of smooth, smoother mm-hmm. output. Yeah, that's a good point. I always forget that about our field is that we're treating... Cognitive need, sensory motor, affective. Right. It's very broad. Um, but in it's some very, ways, it's very in broad, some ways but it's not. very specific. Exactly. Which, exactly. again, which I, I, I like ab- right. about um, sort of most of these, you know, quote unquote, bottom up kinds mm-hmm. of, of measures that, that we talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they can be broadly applied. And I think some of the problems with coming up with outcome research is that people aren't. Um, they're not um, operationalizing it properly, and so they're trying to they're trying to look for generalization in places where it's inappropriate to look. Right. So yeah. that's that's a topic for another day. 
Um, so uh, on another note, actually, um, Jamie and I are going to Boston uh, this mm. coming week for the... So excited. <laughs> she says that she rolls her eyes. <laughs> for the International Neuropsychological Society Conference. Yeah, you cold know, air. It, it, it will be a lot of fun. Yeah. I don't know who was on that planning committee. Yeah, Let's Boston in February. Boston in February of yeah, all the gotta, places in the world. We got to talk with them about that. Yeah. Remember when it was in Hawaii? Anyway. Um, <laughs> so, but we're bringing, we're bringing at least one mic with us, if not two. And so we're going to be doing some, um, uh, some recording there. Um, we wish Peggy was coming with us, but. She's you know, not. I've got other things going on. <laughs> That's all I'm going to so say. So we'll probably, we'll probably pop in an episode from that we record there. And then um, we have to figure out what our next recorded episode is going to be. Because yeah. I think we thought it was going to be one thing and then we changed it. So um, we'll, <laughs> we'll keep people up to date on that as we yeah, can. We're, yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah. It'll be great. Yeah. This is fun. We'll have stuff to talk about. Mm-hmm. So... Um, people where i know we we're gonna do this again peggy where can people find you you know i think we need to do a segment called current with peggy because i just realized i said rollerblading and polka dancing you did yeah you didn't i um, i think and those i was are proud of myself i didn't make a comment I, i'm really proud of you guys but i'm having like an awareness peggy, of myself peggy that lives perpetually in 1980 i really do actually it's a problem except i don't really think it is it isn't yeah it's not. Because no, it's fun. Because polka dancing is awesome. It, I way. stared at that accordion player for like an hour. I was like, that's a ama- Talk about sensory motor. Yeah. The being able to go in and out and then doing chordal changes and then changing. I'm fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amy is trying not to laugh right now. And I rollerblading. Am- I mean, whatever. It's super fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly. great exercise. Yeah. So what's your N- nothing, nothing negative to say about the rollerblading. I forget. Nothing. I can't breathe. The, the polka okay. dancing. Um, there um, is no Twitter handle. It is my email address. Or we are. Oh, we got to say that one. Oh. We are neurocurious at gmail.com. That's right. And That's we do have a Twitter me. account we at do. neurocurious. That's right. At neurocurious. Yeah. How much is that getting used? <laughs> Fairly. Well, we need more people who actually will get on and use it. Okay. Don't ask me about Facebook though, because it's the no, devil. No, no, and we I don't, don't do Facebook. No. Okay. So what about you, so what about you Jamie? Jamie's got a Twitter handle. I do. Yeah. Go for it. Do you it. remember it? No. <laughs> <laughs> this is get, this part of the podcast needs to be cleaned up, guys. Yeah. It's, it's pitiful. It's, we're really. It's at Jamie B PhD. I think. All right. I'm at <laughs> Nebula. I'm at Nebula sixty three. Um, and you can. Check it's out the website. Uh, it's neurocurious.org, and that's where our show notes uh, and link to the podcast will be up. And again, we're on iTunes now. Woohoo! So, yay. So thanks for listening. And thanks, uh, if you have ideas for future episodes, we are absolutely delighted to consider them. Okay? Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening. See ya. Peace. Bye. Bye.